Now you're kind of investing in the business itself and there's so many associated costs rather than me going to go bet on, on the coin or the asset itself. So I would say if I were to, I'd likely rather roll the dice probably with the asset. Ultimately, the product is going to turn out to be more of a commodity than a premium product. And what results from this is that those that survive and those that do well are those that can offer the lowest price. Welcome back to the Beyond the Edge podcast, where we are now on our 12th episode. This week, I will be playing host as Kev Matheson, small cap Kev, is taking some of our industries very literally and is on a psychedelic adventure. I really don't know how this is going to go, but he's really taking some of our content ranking seriously and diving right in. But I am lucky that I have Mr. Fundamentals with me this week. How's it going, Declan? Hey, doing well, Pete. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Excited for week 12. I mean, uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of great things today, including Bitcoin, weight loss, and what's going on in the plant-based space. But first, maybe talk a little bit about what we experienced last week when we were thinking of some stocks going to the moon and lunar. What are some of your thoughts on what's happened there? Oh my gosh, what a roller coaster. I mean, yeah, after they successfully landed, I guess our news leaked out that the lander itself had tipped over. And this was not a positive reaction by the market whatsoever. The stock crashed immediately after hours and then continued to do so throughout this week. So I think it was a, a good lesson in what possibilities lie ahead if you plan on investing in space. What about you? Uh, I think the boys called this one last week. I think when Kev told me that there was 80% retail interest, my exact words were, take your gains. And we used this exact thing as something that could happen and impact the stock. We didn't like it. We passed on it on the short term, but we did say there would be a dip coming. And fundamentally, with the pipeline that was there, might be a nice buy. This dips here. I don't know how you feel about it now. It's still going to be on my watch list for me. Nothing I'm going to jump in right away. How about yourself? Yeah, same here. I think it's kind of one of those things that I would like to see those revenues really develop and kind of just figure out a longer term pipeline so that you know that there can be consistent growth and not so much of this up and down movement throughout the stock price. Agreed. So coming up for this week, very exciting, even though I am playing host and my hair is not good as Kev Matheson's, unfortunately. But we have some really great news this week, actually, kind of across the board. One of the first ones we're going to be talking about is CleanSpark, which has some really exciting news in the Bitcoin space, acquiring some new mining. Then we're going to be talking about Viking Therapeutics. Viking Therapeutics has entered the race of one of the most important weight loss drugs that has now been split between Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly in their GLP-1 uh, products. And they just had some really big news that I'm certain we're going to have some interesting discussions about as the stock went up over 100% in five days. And no, that's not common. So that's going to be something that's really interesting to talk about. And then we're going to be diving back into a throwback of something that was all the rage a few years ago in the plant-based space with Beyond Meat coming out with actually what looks like reasonable business goals rather than uh, potentially 
fluff. So I'm excited to kind of get into it. And I think first we're going to dive in with uh, CleanSpark. So CleanSpark shares jumped this week on the news of the acquisition of three Bitcoin mining centers. Uh, the company announced that initial operations have already begun and the company's operating hash rate to over 15 X hashes per second. This is stuff Declan knows a lot more than me, um, but their CEO was really excited and expanding to this new state is an important milestone for our company. And we are looking to partnering with communities we are joining by maximizing the grid services and capabilities of Bitcoin miners. We aim to create jobs and foster economic growth that benefit both neighbors and our shareholders. This comes as Bitcoin has now reached new highs. So Declan, what first thoughts? I know you're you're a lot more interested in the crypto space than I am. Genuinely, um, I like having ties to it overall and what's going on in you know the broader market. But what do you think about this news in particular? Yeah, well, it's quite interesting. I mean, obviously, from a standpoint of a business that grows and develops based on the accumulation of Bitcoin and then subsequently the appreciation of that asset afterwards. That was obviously good news, but interesting enough, um, and it is to be expected that businesses that are so closely tied to the price performance of Bitcoin, like CleanSpark, are going to have their swings. And that's actually what happened at the end of the week here, when basically what happened was Coinbase, which is obviously one of the larger crypto exchanges, they had a glitch in their system that showed that some users had zero account balances. And so this actually sparked some panic throughout the market. And in just 15 minutes, Bitcoin lost $100 billion in its market cap from this reaction. So this obviously affected not only those investors, but also companies like CleanSpark as well. And I think it really just goes to show how investing in these assets will really play out, particularly if you're going to look into businesses like CleanSpark, where you need to expect that any swing in the price and any underperformance by Bitcoin itself is going to dramatically affect your business as well. So frankly, you know, I'm certainly interested in the space. I, I definitely want to keep an open mind to looking at all opportunities. And also for those people that did take advantage of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, clearly you've had a lot of success this year. At the same time, I am very skeptical of this market. I have not actually made any investments into cryptocurrency myself ever. And for now, I think it's going to stay that way. But it's very interesting. So I was kind of like bounce it back to you, Pete. Like, I'm curious, like, do you find that this lack of diversification and the reliance on Bitcoin to be a problem when investing in a business? Or do you see that or think that CleanSpark can overcome this? Yeah, I think in terms of what CleanSpark is doing, they're going to be very tied to the performance of Bitcoin. And really, it's what Bitcoin is representing of greater market confidence. Um, kind of what I saw is there are some ties to the S&P and, and the price of Bitcoin. And I think whether that's people making money in one and putting in the other or vice versa, there's always seems to be kind of a similar arc just greater volatility, obviously, in Bitcoin with the S&P being um, very much tied to the state of the American economy and, and kind of health overall. So I would really love to understand when are we going to see some form of stability in Bitcoin with the amount of people that are involved? 
with this? And, and what do you think it would take to kind of see that stability? Is that something we could ever expect in Bitcoin? Frankly, I am quite skeptical of that happening. I mean, I, I do see the value in Bitcoin, its use cases, and how it can be potentially used beyond just a storehold of wealth. Agreed. Um, but ultimately, I think the big thing here is that it really comes down to the network effect. And with Bitcoin, it has a very strong network effect, but you're comparing, say, let's say there's, I don't know exactly, I, like this is just off the top of my head, but there's $500 million, or fi sorry, 500 million investors in Bitcoin, but you have the whole world that needs to essentially be able to adopt this in some way or another so that it can be universally accepted. And when it comes to that stability, well, a lot of right now, I think the price performance is based on the speculation tied to, like you mentioned, perhaps the economy as well. So in a period like this, where maybe things seem to get clearer and the recession talks are easing, obviously Bitcoin's going to benefit, but is that a long-term thing? I don't mm -hmm. know. I I kind of think they're speculating. So yeah, that's that's where I stand. What about you? Yeah, I, I don't know how this becomes a little bit more stable. Obviously, the fact that it's 24-7 and doesn't have an end of a trading day at Friday, uh, you know, four o'clock isn't something that has appealed to me. Um, it's something that I do think has a lot of functionality. You and I uh, have always kind of said that and, and agree on on a lot of those factors, but there's certain risk. I mean, the Kev would have probably loved to be here uh, and talk a little bit more about the benefits of, of crypto. But you and I are both believers, I think, in the blockchain and blockchain verification. What we don't love is is volatility and really just still trying to understand a baseline other than its ties kind of, like I said, you know, it's it's it, it is there is some similarities to the S&P. Mm -hmm. I mean, going back to CleanSpark itself, you know, do you think these efforts to expand its mining operations are enough to actually have a successful business, though? Hmm. I mean, simply put, no. Um, <laughs> when you look at this business and what it takes to actually run mining data centers, it costs a lot of money, it costs a lot of energy right. and processing power, and you have to maintain these assets. And you know what? This is reflected in... Uh, Clean Sparks uh, balance sheet overall. I mean, they had $325 million of capital expenditures just in the trailing 12 months. And that just kind of speaks to what level of maintenance and the amount of investment it takes to generate this Bitcoin. Now, actually, in their investor presentation, and I'm sure it's increased since then, but they outlined that they have about 3,500 Bitcoins overall okay. that they've mined. And so it's a meaningful position. Now, when you look at it, you might like, I always come to the thought of like, well, would you rather own the ETF or the token itself? Or does it make this sense to own these businesses? So I'll kind of throw it back to you. Like, do you find there's any reason why you would choose investing in the businesses over the asset itself? Yeah, I think there's more risk, right? Um, I think there's a lot more risk in investing in the business than the asset itself. I think we talked about earlier this year when the Bitcoin ETF launched, which I should have taken a look at before this pod, but I'm sure is just absolutely rocking now. And it's something that the liabilities 
aren't there of the business or even the asset of, let's say, owning uh, Bitcoin itself, if you're not familiar with how to store it, um, depending if it's on a digital wallet or cold storage. I think we, we kind of liked that. We thought it fit a certain audience. But now you're kind of investing in the business itself. And there's so many associated costs rather than me going to go bet on the coin or the asset itself. So I would say if I were to, I'd likely rather roll the dice probably with the asset. Running a business is tough. Running a business with all these inputs that, you know, um, energy being a huge cost on this, uh, that price of energy is affected by many, many things. So I think in the long run, if they could find more effective ways to power things and mine more effectively, that would interest me. Just not something I know enough about as an investor, and I'm still working on educating myself to make that play. Mm -hmm. I kick myself every time I don't. I said in 2018, you know, I wish I had read the book I read then to really start educating myself. I wish I had read it a year before, and apparently I would have had a lot of time to, you know, make some gains. So maybe one of these days, um, I think I'll be in a position that I would consider myself more of a thought leader in the area, but that's not today, so it's a pass. Yeah. Well, I, like I'm torn because one of the investors that I follow a lot and have a lot of respect for is Bill Miller. Um, I think he actually had a track record for like 15 years where he beat the S&P 500 and that's like never been done. So um, his position, his, or sorry, his portfolio is made up of pretty much just two companies or I shouldn't say companies, but assets. It's like 50% Bitcoin and 50% Amazon. And he's the second largest shareholder in Amazon next to Jeff Bezos. So he has a lot of high conviction in these two assets. And for me, I just look at it and I don't feel the same way. Now, to your point, I mean, I don't know if we're necessarily out of the clear quite yet. Like, obviously, Bitcoin has gone on a major run here and that's fantastic, but is the economy really that much better? Sure, there things are improving, but there's still a lot of instability and uncertainty surrounding it. So the possibility of another crash or even take, exam for example, what happened with Coinbase here, one small thing can tip the scale and set it going the opposite direction. Now, maybe that's an opportunity to buy, but really I think, again, that goes back to like, well, we're discussing here the assets itself. And for me, it just... I don't, I don't see what the, the value proposition or the potential investment opportunity that comes with a company like CleanSpark. Like maybe if the business was trading below the value of its Bitcoin, there could be an arbitrage opportunity mm -hmm. there. But I just ran some quick numbers and based on the amount that they said within their investor presentation, their Bitcoin's worth about $222 million. So nothing compared to the 3 billion or whatever that they're currently trading at. And again, it's just, it's just one of those things that I would always default to picking the asset over a business working with that asset and who knows where it goes, but I'm not too sure right now. And, and like you, I think it's one of those things that you have to look back on and just be like, damn, I wish I bought, but at the same time, it's, it's all right missing out on some of those opportunities because you don't really miss out on anything other than just a potential gain. So uh, I do not need the stress of the volatility in my life right now. There's lots of great companies out there. Um, interesting note on Mr. Miller and his kind of stake in that, something I think I'd need to investigate a little bit further. The only thing I will say is this bounce back is positive though. I think it's positive for the greater uh, crypto space because 
at previously it reached a high uh, at 64,000 and took a dip. And I don't know if people ever thought it would kind of regain what it did because there wasn't kind of that pass that. I think when you saw what the S&P did, and I think it dipped around 22% in 22, something around there, which is incredibly significant, there was still faith that it's going to regroup. There was, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, enough money created that for all intents and purposes, it should regroup and, you know, led by the Magnificent Seven, it sure did. And we don't know what the new kind of high is, but most people had that kind of confidence that we knew we were in dark times, but we didn't know how long it was going to last. But, you know, time in the market is more important than timing the market. And that wasn't true, I think, for the crypto and Bitcoin space. But now I think we can see that, that there is the possibility for, for rebound and greater market confidence. Yeah. Well, it's, it's safe to say like that it's quite difficult seeing Bitcoin ever disappearing. Like I think it's adoption mm-hmm. at whatever rate is ultimately going to continue to compound in the positive direction. And I'm sure there's going to be more volatility in the near future and the i mean the good thing that comes with that obviously like if we look back here these past couple of years is it cleans out a lot of those say bad operations or businesses that um, maybe didn't have any real tangible value whatsoever and so it kind of restores and brings a new uh, a fresh perspective on everything and i think that's obviously what happened in this latest run so I'm certainly waiting patient, but for me, I I still have been quite hesitant to dip my toes in it fully. Well, with Mr. Fundamentals and the trend tracker, not heavily (laughs) betting on this one, I think it's probably a good time to to move on to the next. And this one is quite the story that's taken over Wall Street this week with Viking Therapeutics announcing some promising results from their recent clinical trials. Viking Therapeutics shot up 99% as their drug VK2735 demonstrated promising results in their mid-stage trial, showing up to 14.7% body weight loss in patients after 13 weeks. Um, This is a a drug that has a GLP-1 which we'll try to pronounce what it is after that acronym and GIP hormones, which is actually really similar to uh, Eli Lilly's Monjaro. Uh, the people that first made kind of a big name for this was Novo Nordisk and Ozempic with their GLP-1, which has kind of been a huge stock the last three or four years and has now become one of the most valuable companies in the world. Uh, the trial results indicated no evidence of weight loss plateau at weight week 13, suggesting potential for further effectiveness with prolonged treatment. So, Declan, original thoughts on Viking Therapeutics. Yeah, well, it's it's great to see that more companies are trying to participate and penetrate. Do I think that they're going to find much success? Probably not. I mean, a lot of what it comes down to is the logistics that are tied to this. And if the recent events have been any indication of how difficult it has been able to bring Ozempic to market, this should be a good reflection for all small businesses wanting to get into this area. I mean, ultimately, what I think is problematic for Viking moving forward with this is that when they come out with their own drug and potentially other small business come out with their own drug on top of Eli Lilly's and Novo Nordisk's drugs, ultimately the product is going to turn out to be more of a commodity 
than a premium product. And what this causes or what results from this is that those that survive and those that do well are those that can offer the lowest price. And typically that happens with the suppliers that have the largest economies of scale. And so in general, I think that's kind of what's going to happen here. Um, I, you know, I'm curious, Pete, like, did you notice anything different in terms of their trial results and the success of it compared to some of those bigger players? Oh, that is a great question. And absolutely. So that is the first thing that kind of rang my spidey senses here was for some reason, their trial was 170 people. When you look at the competitors in Novo Nordisk, when they did their trial, mid-stage trial in 2017, they had over 4,000 people and Eli Lilly had over 7,000 people in their trial. So I think this is certainly one of the first things you want to look at when looking at a stock that just shot up 100% was the trials itself. And I did my best to kind of dig and contrast and compare to some of these other bigger players that have now become kind of unicorns in the space, especially especially Novo has done incredibly mm-hmm. well. And I think these guys are piggybacking off of that. I don't think this study can really be compared. Do GLP-1s and GIPs work? Uh, absolutely. That's, that's why we saw those logistic issues that you mentioned. Uh, to comment quickly on that, when you're talking about economies of scale and it, it, logistics, Novo Nordisk bought the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. So that's going to kind of help them out now that they decided to vertically integrate and they bought the the North American manufacturer of their drug. But I have a lot of concerns, I think, over what Viking did. Um, one, the, the dosages themselves um, went quite high with some of the people in their trial and some of the adverse ref- effects of this, right? I think when you look at some of their higher dosages of, of this, you have 43% of people reporting mild nausea, not bad. And it wasn't you know uncommon to experience mild nausea in some of the other clinical trials. But what you did see is 29% of the people in the trial reported vomiting. I don't think that's as promising as some of the other uh, trials that were done. So, you know, some of these things, you look at some of the other, you know, effects that might make people not want to continue on this drug. Um, On their higher dosage drug, 20% of people discontinued the, the trial and left early. So there are some things I think that would be worth taking note of and, you know, taking the time to compare that to the much bigger trials of uh novo when they were kind of the first to market and basically the the coca-cola of glp1 and then eli Lilly with monjaro at their trisepatide um is kind of the pepsi i think now that they're kind of second in market and how many room is there for players yeah will this become a commodity i i, I could see that right but you know um you're not buying this off the shelf and doctors prescribe this to you. Are these, 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 yeah, that's great. These results were enough to impress Wall Street. Are these results worthy of a doctor prescribing these to you? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so a few things on that first, like you brought up a good point. And I think this kind of like speaks to the benefit of having something like the FDA in place. You know, a lot of the time, I think people complain about how it slows down the process and it's very monotonous and takes a lot of time. And then also most drugs don't make it to market, but that's also a good thing, right? Like 
if the drugs or say these companies are rushing in to try and take advantage of the next gold mine and they're coming out with their own drugs and if everything was pushed to market, imagine the amount of side effects that could come from that. And so I think it's important that they slow these down. Now, again, I am no expertise in the medical field. And so when I analyze these drugs, I have limited understanding of the overall efficacy, you know, certainly there's obviously positive numbers and everything, but maybe this actually like goes back to um, a conversation we had earlier. And you were mentioning before, just like the effect that some of these bigger players and how they've been touting the results that come from glucose monitors. So maybe you can like help me understand the benefit of those and maybe whether investors should be paying attention to this. And if this is something that uh, people who do have diabetes should be looking out for. Yeah, I think that that's a great common question, Declan. The first thing we should likely go back on is why were these created in the first place? And these were not a weight loss drug. This was a replacement for type two diabetics to lower their, you know, overall insulin levels and their blood sugar levels and help out them with insulin resistance. Mm. So that is not the same issue of what type one diabetics have that can't produce insulin themselves. The result of that was weight loss. And that's what these people are banking on. But the precursor to you losing weight is actually seeing a reduction in what Americans commonly call your A1C levels. So that's something that I think um, investors should certainly look at because that's really a reason why people were losing weight was a was a byproduct and a lower of their insulin sensitivities. So that's something I think investors should certainly look at when they're looking at these um, studies themselves. This is something I was incredibly interested in as I read more and more about uh, you know how important insulin sensitivity is and it actually being one of the contrib- largest contributors to uh, chronic health issues later in life. So I will myself, I work on some glucose monitor and found it very, very interesting and kind of the effects that actually even the order of eating food had, um, you know, had testing, eating fiber, protein, you know, fat, then carbs can actually have a big impact on your glucose levels. Simple things like taking a walk after a meal, huge impact on your glucose levels, right? Now, I think a lot of people in the space of, let's say, type 2 diabetes or obesity would just say, you know, eat less and move more. That works for sure. But there are some people that have issues with their endocrine system and, and hormones. So that is really, I think, who this was initially targeting. But then people were losing weight. And then things got indicated for obesity and weight loss. So that is where you actually saw um, different drugs like like Eli Lilly's, which was actually indicated for both. So doctors can prescribe it for both, where Ozempic has, uh, sorry, Novo Nordisk has different labels for um, type 2 diabetics or, or pre-diabetics or people with insulin sensitivity versus those who are obese and need to lose weight. So I think that's something that investors should be weary of is what was this initially done? So if you're just checking at weight loss numbers and percentage of weight loss, I can tell you again, look at the studies, because even Eli Lilly's, they were getting heavier people than Novo Nordisk in their studies. So obviously you're going to see greater weight loss numbers because there's just some people that have more to lose. So I think those are some things that you need to look at. And I just fundamentally don't think 170 people is something worthwhile. Um, I would also say that when I was looking at their cash position, 
I don't know if that's something you took a look at. There was certainly a reason for a raise, uh, mm-hmm. I think coming up. So, and, and I think this is a, this is a right now currently a zero revenue company, if I'm correct. Right. Declan. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. It's uh, so. I mean, or sorry, just, to, just to jump in here. Like, I think it's quite interesting, obviously that, that, or this is the way the market has kind of transitioned, but I actually just wanted to like bounce back another question to you. Do you know if there's any like regulatory environment where they set a precedent for diabetics to receive these drugs over people with just obesity or is it kind of even right now and expected to really just like be an open market for all? Do you have any insights into that? It's up to your doctor on how they kind of want to combat it. I think obesity is this thing that had never been treated like a disease before. And a lot of mm-hmm. doctors are now treating it as one because of the impact it has on you. So let's say obesity on its own, is that a disease? Is that a curable disease? That's kind of maybe a little metaphorical, but what we do know is that's going to make you more susceptible to chronic diseases later in life. So I think gotcha. that's something that's really interesting. And I think that's why doctors who, I think most doctors are probably trying to work with their patients to eat better, get an exercise routine, mm-hmm. you know, do the, all these things before taking a drug. And these are the obese patients, right? So I think at a certain point, doctors, okay, I'll see you next year or I'll see you in three months or whatever it is. If their patients are going the wrong way, what, what else can they do other than say, okay, if you can take this injectable once a week, um, it is going to help you out in the long run and you're not going to be a patient of mine for other things like heart disease, stroke, or eventually developing type 2 diabetes. So mm-hmm. in the terms of type 2 diabetes, when you've actually kind of got to that level, um, you it, it, it is the opposite of type 1 where your body can't produce insulin. So type two is you've now developed a resistance to it and its impact on how the, you know, body turns food into energy and not storing it as fat and all those things it does um, when you eat. So you've developed insulin resistance. So your body is now having to produce more insulin and you have higher blood sugar to do what it was doing before. Keeping in that state and in a high insulin state is incredibly also bad for you. So previously, because you weren't, you've developed insulin resistance because you had these high levels of insulin. Because for for whatever reasons, lifestyle or diet or you know weight, whatever contributed to your type two diabetes, um, you were prescribed insulin. Right. So that I think is where this drug became very interesting for uh, a lot of doctors because. When you got to that point, they, um, I think there was another drug before this that was incredibly popular before, again, you're injecting yourself. I think it was called metformin and that I think had its own issues, but that drug was all the rage for, for one time. And then you would have to inject yourself with insulin. But like anything, if you are already resistant to something, giving you more of it isn't the answer, right? Right. So I think that's why these, these became popular because they were able to keep people from going on insulin. Um, they were able to see actual tangible results in them losing weight and then their A1C levels, blood sugar dropping. So gotcha. I think in terms of regulatory bodies of prescriptions, 
they're they're approved. Um, they're mm-hmm. indicated for some are indicated for obesity, some are indicated for you know type two diabetes or people you know that are prone to getting it. And really, it's up up to the doctors themselves. That's why they go to med school, and you and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, they yeah. certainly understand them better than we do. It's a you know, it's it, it's definitely quite a fascinating market. It. I find it a bit alarming how quickly it seems to have burst onto the scene. Oh yeah. And the widespread adoption, you know, like it, it obviously benefited from, you know, trends and even speaking to my girlfriend, she said that a lot of celebrities have hopped on Ozempic and everything. Elon tweeted about it. You know, a lot of celebs talked about it. So, yeah. So I like, I always I don't know, I I always want to push back on things that burst onto the scene simply because I don't know, especially like say when it comes to health, like, I don't know, how, what do you think about like the long-term effects of these sort of drugs? Has there been enough uh, research conducted or is ha- has there even been enough time to evaluate them? Like, do you know anything on that side of things? I don't um, because I don't think there's been enough time to actually have, let's say, long-term effects. There's been some adverse effects. You can read that in the studies. And and I really think the problem is maybe using it as indicated that you have to be right. obese or type 2 diabetic. This shouldn't right. be the thing that you're losing 10 pounds or 15 pounds or something along those lines, right? That, that shouldn't mm-hmm. be prescribed for this. So I think we kind of have to keep that in mind when we see this as this weight loss miracle drug that celebs are using. It's not indicated at that. And if you abuse any drug, it's not good for you. If you, if you use anything as not indicated, it, it's not ideal for you. So I think you kind of have to keep, keep that in mind for sure. But when we get back onto the finance side of things in terms of industry, weight loss is a huge market. It's massive. And not having to go to the gym to lose weight and look great is probably an even bigger market than I ever gave it credit for. I've been wondering when some of these are going to top out because you kind of look at what's happening with the caps. This became close to worth a $10 billion company with $0 in revenue. Yeah. I think that tells you enough of the appetite, no pun intended, uh, for for people in this industry and how much weight loss might be worth. I think you know we're saying, considering the projected growth here, the the weight loss drug industry is a hundred billion dollar market. Again, mm-hmm. is this even being mislabeled as a weight loss drug because it was originally kind of conceived for people with with more serious effects? So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I was just gonna say like. That's the thing here, um, along like in terms of Viking Therapeutics, is not only do they not have revenue, but I, I think this drug is still in a phase two study too. So you have to expect that there's going to be more trials and getting to that final marketability point is still a distant future that isn't certain. And you know, you brought up the problem of cash. Well, you know, or they do have $362 million and they burnt about 85 million over the past year. So they certainly have some room to continue taking these trials, but ultimately this is going to be their only revenue bearing source in a market that is dominated by much bigger players. And are they just going to essentially be squeezed out where again, a Novo Nordisk or Eli Lilly just lowers the price 
where Viking Therapeutics has no chance to survive. That's where I see this going, really. And so then it comes to the question, and I know actually like in the article it mentioned, well, potentially Pfizer was eyeing them down as an acquisition. Mm -hmm. So is there an opportunity there? Sure, but I don't know. That was going to be my exact question for you. Mm. Do you see this as an acquisition? I think this comes back to life. They're not paying $7 billion for it, right? So this oh, comes back gosh. to life. They have four things in their pipeline. I mean, when you look at some of the competitors in, in, in this space, the pipelines are stacked, right? And they're moving along the, the different phases, right? So they only have four things in their pipeline. Is this even worthy of an acquisition target? Honestly, if... I think what may happen is one of these bigger players acquires it because they want to get their foot in the door. But if you were to buy Viking Therapeutics at this price point, like it's worth a market cap of $7.7 billion. Its price to book value is $27.75, which is just absurd. Um, honestly, like I think they would end up shooting themselves in the foot and really regret the decision overall at this price. Maybe hopefully there's a another pharmaceutical company that uh, comes in at a cheaper price point or is further down the line. But when I look at Viking Therapeutics, like there's just, it seems like there's so many better opportunities out there in this space that I wouldn't even like take a chance and nor should those companies that have the ability to pay that much money for a business. I would tend to agree. I don't think anyone's going to necessarily want to acquire them unless they do a larger scale study with really reasonable results with a steady supply chain and a path to market, I think, which is something they're way behind on. So I think something I do want to keep in mind and keep tracking is how big can this industry grow? But I do think this is something at this valuation, I would personally stay far, far away from. So I think wrapping up that trend, interesting to go back to a past trend that seems to have kind of come back with some interesting news. Beyond Meat reports fourth quarter and full year 2023. Beyond Meat, which was a prominent plant-based meat company, faced financial challenges in the fourth quarter of 2023, reporting a 7.8% decrease in net revenues and a substantial net loss. The company attributes these setbacks to non-cash charges associated with global operations and reviewing changes in accounting estimates, prompting discussions for their strategy and sustainable and operations of future growth. Beyond Meat experienced a 7.8% decline. The company reported a net loss of $155 million, reflecting negative impacts for non-cash charges. And Beyond Meat's 2024 plan includes measures to reduce operating expenses, pricing actions, production footprint optimization, and the launch of Beyond 4, focusing on health benefits and taste improvements. Declan, what are some of your original thoughts here on everything that's happened with Beyond Meat? Yeah, you know what? I'm quite excited to discuss this because I think the last time you guys had a conversation about this, I wasn't here. So now I get my chance to really uh, dig in and okay. give my thoughts. And so, I mean, when looking at this, I am frankly not thrilled whatsoever. I Personally, I, I wasn't really sold on the plant-based meat market in general, but I actually think the moves that the CEO announced that they're going to make are going to hurt the business overall. So, you know, they talk about being a, or they're going to offer more discounts and lower prices. They're also going to cut down or cut down on operating expenditures and also try to offer more alternatives in general. And I just think that what they're doing is going to hurt not only 
their top line, but their long-term prospects overall. What they really are doing here is downsizing the business. And sometimes that's necessary, but when you're already struggling and competing, I think what's going to happen is the momentum is going to continue carrying downwards. So any consolation to it, to be fair, is that they have been expanding in the international markets. But when I look at the fundamentals of this business, like for one, they are one of the first, like call them retail companies that I've seen have a negative gross margin. They are literally spending more in their cost on sales than they're making in revenue. And that's just a really, really tough place. Like they are nowhere near profitability and I don't see it coming anytime soon. Yeah. Having a negative gross margin would be the exact opposite of scalable. There's nothing (laughs) fundamentally there that would mean you have any path towards profitability. Well, when I look at this business, I think it's understandable why it's in the position it currently is. Uh, When you are trying to create an alternative to a product that is already a commodity, it's quite difficult because in their sense, they probably have to offer quite the premium compared to the base meats and other products that uh, would otherwise be offered. And this puts you in a really tough position. It kind of goes back to our conversation about Viking Therapeutics as well, where ultimately these premium product offerings in this alternative meats market are going to have a really tough time competing if their competitors are able to lower the price significantly enough that it almost makes it not very attractive whatsoever to even take this route in terms of your nutrition. The other thing is that when times get tough and as we have all experienced in the past while with inflation going higher and expenses just gradually increasing more than they usually have, this usually just deters consumers from paying for these premium products overall. So they're just in a really tough position. I mean, when you look at their revenue, I think they made like $500 million in, um, or sorry, $400 million in 2020. And over the trailing 12 months, they've made just $350 million. So their revenue is on the decline in general. And to match that, like their operating loss is at $244 million. So they are just, they've dug themselves a really big hole. And that's not to say that there isn't a market for these types of things, but the economics of it from an investing standpoint just seem terrible. Like, I don't think I've looked at many businesses that, have been in such a worse financial position and it's tough because they're obviously probably the poster child of this market. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those things that I guess like I'm curious on your end, like do you see beyond meat ever being able to get out of this hole or is this going to be a perennial thing for them? No, absolutely not. I do not see them getting out of this hole um, in terms of, you know, the trend, the trend is absolutely not your friend. In terms of interesting <laughs> stats, at least in the North American market in Canada and the U.S., carnivore diet has actually eclipsed the popularity in terms of searches on Google than plant-based ever had. So we've actually completely swung the other way that people are interested in eating more meat than ever and more meat than people were ever interested in going plant-based. I mean, I I think there was certainly a a Netflix effect. I think people tried this out. I think they were going to, you know, new people. I think there was some people doing some trends like meatless days, trying to eat vegan. 
clearly didn't didn't stick with a lot of people. I think during that time, um, I think when people were maybe also eating at home a lot more during the peak plant based period, they were able to order this through e commerce. That might have been a lot more convenient. People are eating at restaurants again as well, and uh, I've not seen you know that popularity in vegan restaurants that was supposed to happen, happen. I see more steakhouses continuing to open up. So the trend is kind of not going that way at all. The only thing that I did find interesting was your comment about internationalization. And is Mm -hmm. there a path that if they focus more on predominantly vegetarian driven countries, could they see a path to success there while leaving, you know, North America behind? What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you look at their past uh, revenue growth in both the North American market compared to the international market, it's clear that one is going in the wrong direction and the other is compounding quite well. And I think it's actually growing at about 20% year over year. So there's obviously a lot of room for growth internationally. The big thing here, and to the CEO's point, obviously they had to reduce their operating expenses and be more conservative with their cash. And frankly, you know, they only have $190 million. So they're either going to reduce their sus- or spending quite significantly, or they're going to need to raise more capital and be diluting shareholders. But either way, I think there's a path that is more promising. It's just a matter if they can kind of get the inertia moving in their direction and benefit from, you know, this positive me- momentum elsewhere. But it's, it's tough to see if that's ultimately going to drive them to a point of profitability and just how many more years can people wait on top of this. It's, it's going to be tough, but there's certainly more demand elsewhere. So, um, you know, they're obviously going to continue investing in it and trying to capitalize, but will it be their key to success? I'm not too sure. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things that also interest me going back to their gross margins, it's just crazy to think that it's still cheaper to get a quarter pound of ground beef than this lab created meat, you know? Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. What do you think is contributing to that? Like when you have to feed an animal and it has to grow and the time invested and then the time in logistics, is there a way that there's any type of technological advancements at some point that they could bring that gross margin down? That's a good point. I mean, I'm sure that they've invested heavily in the technology and are going to continue to do so because that's probably their ultimate goal is to get to a point where when they manufacture this, it's significantly cheaper than it would ever be to you know, produce meat the traditional way. Um, but my understanding of it is that it still remains very, very expensive to do such a thing. And so as long as it continues to be that way, they're going to be in a position where they lose money. So hopefully, I mean, we're in a point in time, you know, just in the world where there is much greater abundance overall in terms of food and there's less scarcity. But at the same time, wouldn't it be awesome if we get to a point where we are completely independent of various circumstances, both internationally and both just from the constraints of actually producing these products? that we could just be able to grow this. So I think it's quite interesting, but I'm curious just on your end, like, do you see it worth the investment for them to continue to pursuing this? Or 
is there probably different approaches that whether through the traditional sense that would be more effective? Yeah, no, I think again, if we're going back to the trend and they were banking on America ditching beef cheeseburgers, they bet way wrong. (laughs) Um, That much is clear. So unless they can find a pricing competitive advantage that, you know, some of the things you just mentioned that I can look at a pound of beef and I can look at a pound of whatever they call this. Um, and it's a one-tenth the cost, people will make that decision, you know, mm-hmm. because I don't think whatever angle they thought they had, whether it was better for your health, whether it was better for your heart, whether it was better for your waistline or better for the planet, none of that stuck with people. People reverted back to their old ways and again, swung the exact opposite with the increases of the carnivore diet. So really, I don't see a path that if there's not technological improvements in the supply chain themselves where maybe soy, which I'm sure is a huge ingredient in this, um, gets a lot cheaper or any of the inputs that go into, you know, this type of meat alternative, um, gets a lot cheaper. I don't, I don't see it unless there's some like technological advancement, a drop in the inputs in their supply chain, some type of magical logistics answer, or just targeting vegetarian countries and getting them to actually like this. Because there's mm-hmm. a lot of people where there's a, you know, uh, places in the world where there's a strong foothold of people that are raised vegetarian and that's what they're going to do anyways. So yeah. why try to win over the hearts and minds of North Americans who love beef <laughs> and are going to kind of stick with that? So I, I don't see it. Um, I, yeah, have I made plant-based investments? Absolutely. During that time, I, I made a bunch. I felt people that felt like a lot of people were swinging that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, this surprised me how much it kind of came back to earth for sure. Um, This one at a large cap scale never really interested me. Yeah. I, I mean, to be fair, I love my steak and I'm probably not the best person to speak on this market in general because I myself am not a customer, but you know, clearly they understand that, Investing in the international space is their best route. It, it's, it'll be kind of ironic that they are a North American-based company that benefits largely from their international dealings. And whether they actually transition out of being a North American-based company um, will be interesting because ultimately, like, are they producing everything here or will they start to expand elsewhere? Will be kind of their, their future in the next couple of years and, and they make it happen. We will see, but, uh, I'm all right passing on them in terms of investing. Yeah. And did they bet wrong on their capital infrastructure of where manufacturing yeah. is? Because now if you're thinking of shipping costs and logistics to get to some of these far reaching places, is, is that ever going to be profitable? And will they ever have the money to kind of really start up in some of these places again, uh, remains to be seen, but business is tough. <laughs> uh, the upside about being an investor and not an operator is you get to choose where you put your funds and you and me have certainly decided that it's not in this one yeah easy, easy to nitpick too when we're uh, sitting here behind a screen and looking oh. at them from this lens right <laughs> yeah sorry mr ceo hindsight is a wonderful thing and we have it and you unfortunately yeah. Uh, we're in the right place at the right time when you guys launched and it was all the rage, but now it is not looking that way. Yeah. 
Well, another exciting week, Declan. Uh, thanks so much for the time. I think we caught a lot of interesting uh, industries. Always great when we can chat about uh, previous uh, bubbles of past, um, existing industries that are hitting new reaches, and um, crypto. So, yes, sir. No, it was a great conversation. Yeah. So if anyone actually made it to the end again, uh, Kev will be here next week for sure. And the three of us will be back in no time. So we uh, record every Thursday and post every Sunday. So if you like it, hit the like and subscribe button and we'll see you next week. Thank you.